Well, let me pray before we dive into God's Word this morning. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for just being our God and that you love us just where we are. Yet you do call us, God, to obedience, uh, especially when, um, as we're seeing so much in our world go on right now, God, we're seeing um, people struggle, people having to deal with difficulties. We want to pray, Father, for those that are, especially right now, that are dealing with the the aftermath and and still going on with the fires up north, God. We pray, God, that you would be all comforting and that you would bring um, people that love Jesus around those people and along the people that love Jesus, too, that have lost homes. And I pray that you would just be that great comforter and that people will be drawn to you because of this and all the other things that have been going on in our world. Take our time this morning. May your, my words be yours. May your spirit lead and guide in your name. Amen. Has been quite a few months, couple months, hasn't it? When it comes to disasters and difficult things going on, when it po- politically, I mean, just so much going on in our world. And it just so happens we're coming to a passage that is pretty fraught with some difficult things also that, ha- that happens. And so the, the hard thing for me a lot of times is that so often when life goes sideways, you know, when difficult things happen, uh, frustrating things happen in our lives, we get overwhelmed by our circumstances. So often it can be difficult to wonder, no, how is God in this? How does this fit into God's plan what's going on? Think about all that's been going on in our world right now. How does that fit into God's plan. I mean, for us, it could, it's easy to doubt that it has had that plan. And it could be in the small things. It could be like disagreements with friends or with family or financial setbacks, things like that that really kind of, we go, man, where's God in all this? Or it can be big things, illnesses or death in the family, or like I just mentioned, the fires. I mean, that's, that is huge. Take that for just example. Literally thousands of people have lost their homes. I mean, we're not talking a neighborhood. Thousands of people have lost their homes. And good people, many of them great people, and I'm sure a lot of them loyal, devout followers of Jesus, many of them. Some people have even lost their lives in all of this. In situations like this that make it easy, I really believe, and you probably know this, for people to wonder if God is so good If God is so in control, how can he allow these things to happen? How can this possibly be a part of God's plan? How can it be? Well, as followers of Jesus, we know that whatever happens, God has a plan. We know verses. We know these verses, such as Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, who those that are called according to his purpose. We've heard that. We know that. We also know verses like Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and to give you hope. But I think oftentimes, if we're honest, when we're in the middle, we believe those things, but we're in the middle of stuff like that. When we're in the middle of difficult times, when we're in the middle of even tragedy, we can find ourselves easily doubting those truths, so easily. This morning, what we're going to do as we continue on in our studying the gospel of Matthew, we're looking once again at the birth narrative of Jesus. We're finishing up on that this morning. And in it, what we're going to do, we're going to see is we're going to see that when life goes sideways, 
when difficult or even unimaginable things happen, we can trust without a doubt that God has a plan. We can. Last week, we looked at the story of the, the wise men or the, or the magi and uh, Herod the Great, and we saw that how these different characters, what they really showed us was a difference between responding to God's gift of grace out of fear or faith. This week, the focus is going to turn back to Joseph. Okay, we're going to go back to him now, and what we're going to see is see how God leads and directs Moses, I mean Joseph in order to ultimately bring about his plan. Okay, we're going to look at, the, at three truths, okay? Just three truths that I found in the, and that I felt like were in this passage that are part of the story that help us to see that when life does go sideways, not only is God completely in control and have a plan, but he desires to use us during those times in order to fulfill his plans. So let's jump right in. Let's jump right into this narrative to this story. We're going to first verses, uh, cha- Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. It says this. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So here we have now the Magi. This is after the Magi leave. Remember, they, they presented the gold, frankincense, and myrrh and all that stuff. They go back to their countries. They don't go back and tell Herod that the Christ has been born. Once again, an angel now appears to Joseph. Okay, and tells him, get up, take Mary and take Jesus, go to Egypt. Because the King Herod is making plans to, th- kill, to kill this child. Okay, look, he's going to look for him so he can kill him. Wow, that would, that would be an amazing thing to be revealed in a dream, wouldn't it? Can you imagine that? What? Now remember last week we saw that Herod was an extremely insecure and brutal ruler. Remember, we talked about how he would just kill anybody who posed the slightest threat to his rule. He would have them executed. So when he finds out from the Magi, he finds out where the Messiah is, the new king of the Jews, and where he is born, he goes into planning mode. Okay, he goes into the planning mode. Going to kill this child. Now, the angel tells him to go to Egypt. Now, this is the, I got a little map here to help you out. This is just to give us, a, some of us are visual people. We think this way. Um, so they're in, they're in Bethlehem, okay? Angel says, go to Egypt, okay? Now, Egypt is about 150 miles southwest of Judah. And really, it was, it was pretty natural for um, Israelites to seek refuge in Egypt when things were going bad in their country. Um, it wasn't far from Israel, uh, it was outside of Herod's jurisdiction. Also at the time, they say that there were up to a million Jews living in the area of Egypt. So they really had camaraderie and they could come together and feel okay about that. Now by immediately doing this, what Joseph, what the, by doing what the angel of the Lord tells him, Joseph once again is modeling for us this unwavering obedience in the face of uncertainty. Remember last time it was go, just take, take, Mary, take Mary as your wife, knowing all those consequences were probably going to come. He just went and did it. He went ahead for it. And we've seen this already. 
He wasn't afraid. He took Mary as his wife. Huge consequences. He knew were coming, and they did. He knows nothing of the outcome of this present situation now or of God's plan either. All he knows is the next step. Go to Egypt. Get up. Go to Egypt. And he does. He trusts that God, what he's doing here, he's trusting that God has a plan. He has to trust in something or he wouldn't do it. He trusts that God has a plan. Now, it's important to note that traveling at night back then, especially that far, was not only super inconvenient, remember, no headlights, <laughs> no flashlights, couldn't turn your smartphone on to guide you, it was dark, and it was very, very dangerous. But, Mo, but Joseph gets up, and he does it. And this is where we see our first truth concerning trusting that God has a plan when life goes sideways. We see here that Joseph, from Joseph, that God uses obedience into leading, to his leading to fulfill his plan. God uses obedience to his leading to fulfill his plan. You see, God uses Joseph and his obedience a couple of different times. We're going to see it throughout this little story here that he uses him to fulfill his plan for fulfilling Old Testament prophecy concerning the different details about who and what and all that about Jesus. He uses him for that. Now, remember that Matthew, remember he's writing to primarily a Jewish audience. Remember? He's, what he's trying to do is convince them that this Jesus, this one we're talking about, he is the promised Messiah, the one that we've all been waiting for. He is the fulfillment of all this Old Testament prophecy you know of. He is the one. So the first of the three prophecies we're going to see here that he focuses on is found in, in this story is found in verse 15. Verse 15, if you look back at that, it says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, i got to tell you right up front, we're going to hit three really interesting prophecies. Some that are a little bit hard to really grasp. So I'm going to do my best to kind of explain them. Because remember, this is, Matthew's going all out to help convince these people that know so much in their head about the Old Testament, but are refusing to believe about Jesus. So what this prophecy, that, this verse is a prophecy from Hosea. And what it's saying is about Jesus is really, and this is really interesting, it's saying that Jesus is actually the new Moses. Jesus, and he's also saying that Jesus is actually the true Israel. And then he's going to, so he explains that. And people will know this as they see as, as they go along. Remember, God, through Moses, God brought Israel out of Egypt. And, but they went on to worship false, false gods. And they, weren't, they wouldn't stay true to God. So Israel had gone to Egypt many centuries earlier. Okay? And had come out of Egypt under Moses' leadership. Jesus' journey into Egypt as an infant, what he's doing, here's what Matthew, you got to follow this. What he's doing is connecting him with a part of Israel's history here. And also with Moses' role in freeing his people. See, Moses freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Jesus will free people from slavery to sin. You see what he's doing here? He's being very smart. He's just not writing a chronicle of, of, of Jesus' life. He knows his audience. He's very aware, so he's going right 
for where he knows they will understand. Now, as for Jesus being the true Israel, I'm not going to explain this. I'm going to let someone else do it. So, there's a pastor. I looked up what, up what something he said. A theologian and a pastor named Kevin DeYoung. Listen to what he says about this idea. Now, but you got to put your head, mind inside the fact that you're a Jew and you, all this Old Testament prophecy, you're waiting for the Messiah to come. Okay? And you know Jewish history. He says this, Matthew clearly wants to portray Jesus as fulfilling Israel's history and bringing it to a climax. Matthew didn't think Hosea 11.1 was a direct prophecy about Jesus and his family going to Egypt. And Hosea certainly didn't mean it as such. The passage is about Israel's exodus out of Egypt and about her subsequent idolatries and adulteries. Matthew wasn't trying to give Hosea 11 a new meaning, but he did see something messianic in Hosea's words. Jesus would be the, would be the fulfill the son, well, I'm sorry, Jesus would be the fulfillment son God called out of Egypt, filling up what was lacking in the first faithful son, Israel, from his Genesis to his Exodus to his baptism in the Jordan, to his 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus was identifying himself with the covenant people. He was the embodiment of Israel. Now you're thinking, what? All that Jewish history? What this all means here is that God used Joseph's obedience to his leading by fleeing out of Egypt in order to fulfill prophecy that would help people understand the person and the work of Jesus. Isn't it amazing? We think the Bible so oftentimes we go, why, did that, why is that in there? Why was it written like that? This is very plain. This is like he's shining a beacon light for these people. And you know, the reality is God wants to use you and I the same way that he used Joseph. You see, Joseph's obedience to the Lord in the midst of a very difficult situation shows us that when we are obedient to God's leading in our lives, despite knowing the outcome, we are participating. We're actually participating in something much bigger. We're participating in God's overall plan. You guys never, never underestimate the eternal impact of being faithful to God's leading. Never underestimate that. We do not know what God is, is, is got planned. We might think, oh, that's just a small thing to be obedient in this area. What consequence will that have? We don't know. God's calling us maybe to do something really big. And we're going, whoa, I don't know about that. But really, we, God's just saying, I want you to be a part of something really, really big. And that's, isn't that what we all want? Don't we all want to be a part of something meaningful and big, especially as followers of Jesus, something meaningful and big for God? He's saying, be obedient. You see, as we live our lives in tune with God's spirit by spending time in his word, in prayer, and in fellowship with other believers, we become more and more aware of when and how we're being led by the Lord. I can't tell you how God is leading you. I can't tell you that. You've got to find that out. That's why it's a relationship. But you've got to be spending time with him. And in fellowship with others and doing all that you can to know and listen to what he has to say. Because our job is simply to obey. 
We don't know what he's telling us to do. We can't obey. And there's a lot of distraction out there. Let me ask you this. How might God be asking you to be obedient to his leading in order to be a part of his plan? I mean, it could be simple. It could be simply committing to spend more time nurturing your relationship with Jesus. That would be phenomenal. For me, I know. I know that's one of the things I needed to continue to do. Not think about, oh God, what's the plan? How is Coastside going to be? When should we build a new church? When should we, you know, send, start planting all these? I'm thinking, wait a sec. I need to be faithful and obedient and to nurturing my relationship with Jesus. That's where it begins. But it could also be complex things like doing things that you never expected God calling you to do. Ever had that happen before? And you know, oh, this is God or a bad burrito. I'm not sure which this one is, but I think it's God and oh my, that can happen and it's so exciting. All right, let's look at the next part of the story. Verses 16 through 18 says this is a whole nother thing, another prophecy coming up. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, Things that we cannot gloss over because they're all important. First of all, we see here that just because Herod has all the male children under two years old killed does not necessarily mean that Jesus was two years old at the time. Remember, Herod was cruel. He was barbaric. And it would fit very well with his persona that even if he figured that Jesus was an infant or even a couple years old, it would fit perfectly for Herod to say, ah, just everybody under two years old, just to make sure. So that's easy that could happen because that's who he was. Tragedy. Horrible. These are one of those things, remember, these are one of those things where people go, how could God possibly allow these things to happen? God has a plan. Verse 18 says, is a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Um, we're talking about Rachel here. This is where the prophet at this time is, what he's doing right here is he's figuratively speaking about Rachel and as being alive at the time, at the time of Israel's final defeat and being taken into captivity into Babylon. You see, Rachel was Jacob's wife who bore, who bore two of the 12 sons, the kids, the guys that would be kind of the heads of the, to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. But she bore two of them, and two of them, probably the one, some of the most important patriarchs in all of Jewish history, Joseph and Benjamin. So what we have here is a picture of Rachel weeping. And she, look what she says, uncontrollably, but she can't stop crying. She's overcome, unable to be comforted as, as her children being carrying off into exile. That's what Jeremiah is doing. Jeremiah says, this is such a sad event that the, the, the matriarch would just be crying. You know how we, sometimes we say, so-and-so would be rolling over in their grave or so-and-so would not be happy if they heard. That's what he's doing here. It's helping to, because what he's doing is showing how horrible this situation, this situation is. 
Okay, he's trying to help him see the, 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 the nastiness of how life can just be so difficult. And now, and Ramah was a place, to add to this, Ramah was a, the place where actually they gathered all the exiles together in order to sheep, herd them off into Babylon. And it was also the location of Rachel's tomb. So you see what he's doing here? He's trying to help the people to understand this is a horrible, horrible thing. What we have here is a picture of Rachel weeping and can't be comforted because her children are going off into exile. Just as this time when Jesus goes off into Egypt, then all these children are slaughtered. It's a horrible thing. And we're going to see, though, how God works in it. Because in linking these two events together, what Matthew is doing here is he helping us. He's helping his readers and he's helping us to understand really our second truth here. Our second truth about trusting that God has a plan when life goes sideways. And it's that tragedy and hard times do not mean God's plan is thwarted. Okay? Tragedy and hard times do not mean that God's plan is thwarted. You see, this chapter of Jeremiah, where this verse is coming out of, is actually, believe it or not, it's a chapter of hope. It's a chapter of restoration, where verse 15 is the only verse that's the downer. That's the really sad verse. Because the verses that follow describe God's love and his faithfulness to his people and his promise to one day restore them. I want to look at it. Look, Jeremiah 31 just the next two verses, 16 and 17. Listen to what they say. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to your own country. See, what Matthew is doing here, he's associating the events with Jesus' life to the wide range of events in the history of Israel. See how he's just going after them? He knows where their minds are. So he's bringing this all in. Just to illustrate, I put up a little slide here. It says, see, in Genesis... Rachel dies giving birth while on the road to Bethlehem. And in the midst of while she's giving birth, what happens is her, maid, her midwife tries to comfort her by telling her, listen, you have a son. You have a son to carry on your name. So in this way, her child is both her cause of deep sorrow, but a future, a hope for the future. Now in Jeremiah's day, Rachel figuratively weeps over her children once again, this time as they're being carried off into captivity and to exile near the very spot that she is buried. She's then comforted with the promise that her children will return. Her offspring, once again, are both a cause of deep sorrow, but of hope for the future. Now in math, now back present tense, Matthew's day, Rachel weeps again, figurative. She's weeping again, this time over the killing of the children in Bethlehem. Now, no words of comfort are given here. You notice that? He doesn't say, but don't worry. This is going to happen. It was for this reason. But the, you'll no, we'll notice soon here, the very next verse speaks of Herod's death. 
and the return of Joseph and Mary and Jesus to the land of Israel. Just as in, in Jeremiah's day, the situation seems horrible. The situation seems bleak, but the hope of salvation lives on. Feels paradoxical, doesn't it? Feels very hard to wrap our heads around. But God has a plan. The point is here that this part of the story is telling us that even in tragedy and in hard times, we can be confident and trust that God still loves us. He still has a plan, even when the circumstances for us are difficult to understand. He has a plan. Now, obviously, you know, as Christians, you don't walk up to someone and go, oh, you just lost your house. God has a plan. Don't worry. Of course not. But these are the things that bring us hope. These are the things that bring us encouragement in our hearts when we start going through things that just are difficult and they don't make sense. We can know there is hope. I can cling to the truth that there is hope. And this is what Matthew is doing for these people because he knows he has to reach back in their history to help them to understand this. So, all right, how, a question I want to ask you on this point is that how or where might you need to see that God is still good? Really, think in your life, how do you need to see how or where that God is still good, that he's still for you and has a plan for you, even in the midst of hard times and sometimes even unexplainable tragedy? These are good questions we need to be asking ourselves, okay? All right, let's look at the third one. Let's look at the third, the third uh, truth that we have here. And this is in the last part, the third part, not, verses 19 uh, to 23. It says this, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. Man, this guy's on a streak. He's saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of his father, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that it was spoken, here we go again, spoken by the prophets that might, might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. So... Presumably, a couple years later, Herod dies. Angel, once again, comes to Joseph and says, all right, go back to Israel. Head on back, buddy. Now, notice, once again, Joseph, he's obedient. He does it. And he's not even sure where. This doesn't say that he says, Joseph, head back to Bethlehem. He just says, head back to Israel. It's like me telling you, I want you to go live specifically on the East Coast. What? So he's in faith going, all right, I'm just going to head, I'm just going to head out. He probably assumed that he was going back to Bethlehem. I'm sure he assumed that. He was probably heading in that direction, but he just went. Now, upon, here's the thing though. He hears that Herod's son now is ruling in place of Herod after he's dead. And Bethlehem is actually located in Judea, in Judea there. And so he was afraid. He's afraid to go there. Uh, it turns out that Archelaus, the, the apple did not fall very far from the tree. 
Archelaus was just as ruthful, ruthless and just as cruel as his father. He actually began his reign, I read this somewhere, he, he began his reign by massacring 3,000 people at a Passover celebration to prove his power. Apple didn't fall far, did it? So Joseph, either he, while he's in Egypt or while they're on their trek, on, this, on their way, he finds out about this and he says, uh, I can't do that. There's no way. That just seems crazy. But we find out that he doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't have to figure it out because the angel comes to him and says, tells him what to do again in the dream. Okay, this time he's prompted to go to the region of Galilee. Now, it's more maps, okay? It's map time. I'm kind of a map geek anyway. Map time. Um, we've got this map. There's a couple of them. One shows the, the route that he went. they went back. So they're in Egypt. They went from Bethlehem. Now they're in Egypt. Now they're going to go all the way through, all the way up. Nazareth is in the, in the region of Galilee there. Now, here's the thing. These geographical details are important. They're there for a reason. Matthew wouldn't have included them. He wouldn't say, go here, go to that town, go to this city, just for the heck of it. He would want them to understand they are important. Look at this other, other map here. It helps us, helps us to see that... Um, so he was originally in Bethlehem, which was just about six miles south of Jerusalem. Now he goes all, God has him go, because he has a plan, God has him go all the way up to Nazareth in Galilee. And you'll notice Galilee kind of is a different color there. That's a separate part of Israel there, of Israel. You see, the northern province of Galilee was decisively distinct in history political status, culture, and so many ways from the southern province of Judea, okay, which contained, you know, Judea had Jerusalem, it had the holy city, they were the upper crusty kind of, kind of people. Judeans didn't like people up in the north and Galilee, they didn't look kindly at that their northern, northern neighbors, mainly due to their lack of Jewish sophistication. They weren't as sophisticated as the people down south at all. We kind of are the opposite here, aren't we? But um, we, you know, they're not as, they weren't as sophisticated. A lot of it had to do with they felt like they were way too open to uh, Hellenistic influence or Gentile influence. They were letting that kind of come in. Now, in speaking of <laughs> Jesus being from Galilee, now this is the big thing. He's trying to help them understand that Jesus is from Galilee. Okay, here's one of the commentators said that I, I read this week. He says this, even an impeccable Jewish Galilean in first century Jerusalem was not among his own people. He was as much a foreigner as an Irishman in London or a Texan in New York. His accent would immediately mark him out as one of us, one of, not one of us. And all the communal prejudices of the supposed superior culture of the capital city would stand against his claim to be heard even as a prophet, prophet let alone the Messiah, a title which, as everyone knew, belonged to Judea. So you see, understand where Matthew's going here? Kind of helping the people understand something here. Not only does Jesus now go to the province of Galilee, but in the end, he ends up living in a town called Nazareth. Now, some of you will recall in John's gospel, a few days after Jesus was baptized in the southern part, he starts calling his disciples. Remember that? He starts calling out different disciples. 
Remember this one instance in John's gospel, he writes this, he says, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him who Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote about, okay? We found the guy, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Remember this? Remember what Nathanael says? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I love Philip. Come, come and see. I don't, I don't think so. Probably not. So you see what Matthew's doing here. He's painting a picture of Jesus for his Jewish readers. Yet even more, to have Jesus be called a Nazarene actually means to refer to him in a dismissive and a derogatory way. See, what Matthew is doing here in this, in this one last verse, in verse 23, when he says that, so that it was spoken by the prophets to be fulfilled, that he might be called a Nazarene, he's not speaking of a specific prophecy. There is no prophecy in the Old Testament that says he will be called a Nazarene. What he's probably doing is he's taking a general series of prophecies that really tell and describe the humble circumstances and the humble way and, and how Jesus would live his life and how he would not be accepted or taken seriously even by his own people. Really the most prominent, and many of you, this will sound, look familiar, the most prominent of all the prophecies that Matthew is drawing from here is Isaiah chapter 53, one through, 53 verses 1 through 3, where he says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. Like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that would look, would look, should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their face, fight faces, he was despised and he was, and they esteemed him not. Wow. Not exactly a description of someone that you would consider to choose to put in, their, in line as the hope of the salvation for the world, right? Despised, hated, rejected? Wouldn't we want to look at him? That's Jesus. And this... We wouldn't describe someone that would do something amazing for God that way, but you know what? That's exactly how God works to fulfill his plan. What this tells us is our last thing. It tells us that our circumstances never dictate whether or not we play an active part in God's plan. Never. So often we think that as soon as I get through this rough patch in my life or with my family, as soon as I get my, my health back or once this, different, once this different situation is dealt with and I have more breathing room or like we like to say bandwidth here, we like to say once I get a little more bandwidth in my life, then I know I'll be able to play a more active part in God's plan. The truth is that it is often when our life has gone sideways and when circumstances are difficult that we see God's power and we see his great work in and through us in order to fulfill his 
plan. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul. He was a great example of this. Remember, in 2 Corinthians 12, this is when the time when the Lord taught him that it was through what Paul initially perceived as negative thing and a negative life circumstance, this thorn in the flesh. This was a thing that God, that he would ultimately experience God's grace with and in turn be the most useful and actively being a part of God's plan. Because I think a lot of times we say, God, if we just, this, this thorn in the flesh, there's just something about me that what, if we just fix that, if that would just be different, man, I'd be a powerhouse for you. That's so easy where our minds go. What life circumstances or life circumstance have you allowed to dictate whether you play an active part in God's plan? Is it your busy schedule? I got all these kids or I got all this stuff going on. Is it an illness that's just been lingering? Is it a family issue? Is it a financial issue? Or is it a past mistake or a regret that you're holding on to? Remember, God has a plan. And no matter what you and I have experienced or what we're experiencing right now, God desires you and I to play an active part in his plan today. Not when it gets all taken care of. Not when things are all worked out. That's how he works. Because if we waited till everything was fine and dandy, I wouldn't need God as much. But it's awesome to see God's power and majesty and amazement work in and through me when I feel like, oh my gosh, I'm down and out. But God used me. I want to encourage you with this. Leave you with this this morning. Let me encourage you to live in this truth. These truths that we've talked about this morning, live in these truths these week, this week so that when life goes sideways, when something happens, when, whether it's small or big, you will, your knee-jerk reaction will be, to, you know what? God has a plan. He hasn't abandoned me. He has a plan. Let's pray. Father God, it's so wonderful and humbling to know that you have a plan. And that plan includes us. You have a plan that so often we don't understand. Yet God, we know that you're a good God. And we thank you for the example that you've even given us here of one man, Joseph, who through his obedience to your leading, gives us great examples of that and shows us how true that is. May we this week, may I this week trust that when something sends me a little sideways that we will automatically remember you have a plan and that nothing, nothing separates us from that plan. The love you have for us and the inclusion that you have for us in that plan. Thank you, God. Thanks for loving us so much. And it's your son's name we pray. Amen.